That is Jesus' commitment to the church. His commitment is, I will build my church, and the gates, again, when I was young, I was always taught, I always had this mentality that hell was coming after us, right? And Jesus was going to protect the church from hell coming after us. No, gates are designed to keep people out. Gates are just defensive. So the church is supposed to be going into hell. And the gates aren't going to keep us out. You see that? We, we are supposed to be on the offensive. We're supposed to be going, bringing the kingdom. And Jesus committed that he's going to build a church that does this. Now, whether we are that generation or not is up to us. And Jesus is not only committed to building his church, but, but in that commitment, he also supplies everything needed to bring it to pass. Do you, under, do you understand that God will never call you to anything that he hasn't already provided everything that you'll ever need to accomplish it? Because that would be wrong, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be wrong to tell your child that, that I want you to do this, this, and this, and then not provide them the tools to get it done? To hold them accountable for that, but then not give them the things necessary for them to be successful in it. See, when God made the, go back to the, to the um, Garden of Eden and creation. When God made the entire earth, he, he put seed within everything that he created so that it would reproduce after itself, right? Everything that we need was created at the very beginning. God has never needed to create anything again because he put it in motion so that we already have everything we need to live. Do you understand that? So when God calls you to something, he's already, he has already given you everything you need to fulfill it. Right? So you have, every, that, that's not an excuse. Well, I, I know God's called me to do this, but, you know, I what about this, this, and this? That's not a non-issue. We step out on in faith. We we say, "What, Lord? What is your first, What's the first step?" Right? We start walking, walking out where God's called us to do. So Jesus not only committed to build His church, but He has provided everything that we need to bring it to pass. He has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the the ministry anointing to serve. Right? He's given us the gifts. Of, of serving, and he's given us the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? He has given us his word. We have so much available to us. We have so much more available to us than the, the early church did. They didn't even have an entire Bible. They had letters. They might have one letter written to a church. We have the entire word of God given to us. We have the ability to have someone listen to have someone read the bible to us in our headphones or in our car or over our speakers anytime we want we have the ability to listen to teachers from all over the world we can google and find what the bible says about anything we we, we and we're the most we're the most laziest christians in history Think about that. Everything that's available to us. 
He has given us His Word. He's given us the Spirit. He's given us the anointing. He's, he's, given, he's given us His gifts. He's given us one another. You know that? The people around you right now are a gift from God. We are individual stones, it says, that, God, that Jesus selects and puts as He's building His spiritual home. We are members, Paul talks about. Paul talks about we are members in the body of Christ. Individual members that make up one body. And if you've ever stubbed your pinky toe, you know that there's no member in the, bi- in the body that is insignificant. Right? There is no insignificant people in the body of Christ. So here's the question. Today is going to be a day of self-examination. Today, the question is, is are you engaged? Are you engaged? Are you engaged in what God is doing in the earth? Are you engaged in the process of building the kingdom? Now, before you answer that, let me tell you what I'm not asking. Okay? Let me, let me tell you, because you've got to know what the question actually means. I'm not asking, do you go to church? I am not asking, were your parents or grandparents Christian? I'm not asking if you raised your hand at the end of a sermon one time. Or or I'm not asking, did you pray a prayer after a preacher? I'm not asking, do you own two or three Bibles? I'm not asking, has your name ever appeared in a church directory? I'm not asking, if if if, if, if you've ever gone to Sunday school or VBS. I'm not asking if you ever wore a WWJD bracelet. I'm not asking if your ringtone is a worship song. I'm not asking that uh, when you pray, are you able to use at least five or more cinnamons, cinnamons, you know, different names for, for God. I'm not asking if you ever wore witness wear, whether on your body or on your car. I'm not asking if the King James Version is the only version of the Bible. I'm not asking if you kiss dating goodbye. I'm not asking, that, that was my generation. I'm not asking that under religious views, does your Facebook page say follower of Christ? I'm not asking if you dog Harry Potter and you praise Lord of the Rings. I'm not asking if before you talk bad about someone, you first say bless their heart. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm not asking those things. Because before we quickly answer that we are engaged in Jesus' work of building the kingdom, I think we really need to understand the question. What does that mean? What does it mean? For many, when it comes to the, respo- the response, yes, I'm engaged, I I, I think that they don't really know. I don't think that they, what they think it means is what it really means. So what does it mean to be engaged? In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them. Because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him 
about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Wow. I wonder, what, would, what does Jesus say about us? I mean, I, that would be devastating to hear Jesus say, you, you might say that you trust in me, but I don't, I don't trust you. You know, so these are the things that we don't really preach on what Jesus what Jesus said. You know, everybody's excited this year because Michigan finally has a decent football team. <laughs> They're excited, and there's lots of fans. The Lions, the Lions have a decent football t- team, first time ever. You know, the Lions have never went to a Super Bowl. And, and this year, there's talk that they might go to the Super Bowl. And now the fans come out. The fans come out, right? And there's all types of fans. And, and there's some fans that are on fantasy football leagues. They spend hours and hours playing this fantasy game with football, whatever. I don't know what it is. But they're involved in that. And then you got fans that paint their chest and their face and they take their shirt off at games and and yell and scream, right? And, and and people that spend big dollars to go to games and celebrate and and root on their teams, they know all the stats, they know all the guys people's names. They they are awesome fans. They love it. But there's a big difference between a fan and someone that actually is playing the game. Someone that's in the game. Someone that knows the plays, someone that 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 is Uh, a member of the team, someone that is sweating, someone that is physically drained, someone that is trying to move the ball down the the field, someone that that feels pain, someone that, that not only deep down in their core of their body knows the joy of victory, but but also knows the, the pain of defeat. There's a big difference between those that are in the stands and those that are actually playing the game. I don't think Jesus is interested in having fans. I think Jesus is looking for people that want to be engaged in the game. The sad truth, many of the churches in America have gone from being sanctuaries to stadiums. Where every week we show up, the fans come in, they come into the stadium and they cheer and they celebrate Jesus, but no one is interested in actually engaging in what Jesus is trying to do, engaging in the game. Could the biggest threat to the church today not be, not, not see what you see on social media, not see what you see in culture. Not, not, not all these things that we get angry against. Could, could, could those not be the biggest threat to the church today? Could the biggest threat to the church today be those that call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in engaging in building the kingdom? They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits but not so close that it requires anything of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says, 
They are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant. Who wants to be ignorant here? Does anybody want to be ignorant? Well, Paul says that when we compare ourselves to other people and we use other people as our standard, we are being ignorant. How many of us are ignorant? Don't raise your hand. I think we all could raise our hand at one time or another, right? Well, I'm better than that guy. I don't have no dead bodies in my trunk, right? Many ignorantly gauge their engagement into the kingdom of God by carrying, comparing themselves to others. You know, I, I, I think of, of Jesus after he resurrected. And, you know, Peter, he denies Jesus. This is what's so great about God is that he never gives up on you. Peter, Peter, he, he denied Jesus three times that I didn't even know him. It says, it says that he literally cursed trying to convince people that he didn't know who Jesus was. And just like in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and they hid themselves from God, and God came and found them and says, where are you? It's not because he didn't know where they were. It's because he wanted them to realize where they were. Jesus comes to Peter. He comes seeking out Peter, and he tells them, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Feed, yes, Lord, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed, feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know all things. He goes, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus asked if you love me. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Jesus came and reinstated Peter. And no matter what your failure is, know that Jesus comes looking for you. And he's looking for you, and he wants you to be part of what he's doing in this earth. He loves you. And there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. But Peter, he's talking to Peter, and he's there saying, Peter, okay, there's some tough road ahead of you. One day, you're going to be changed, and people are going to take you to a place you don't want to go. And what does Peter do? It says he turned around and looked at the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. He says, what about him? What about him? And Jesus says, what business of, of that is yours? If I desire for him to, to, to remain until my... I return, what business is yours? And so many times as Christians, we, we, are, we are constantly looking at other people and say, what about them? What about them? And Jesus says, he just wants you to stay focused on him and what he has for you. We compare ourselves. We look at the commitment level of other peoples around us, and, and we feel like we're, we're, our engagement is solid because we're judging ourselves compared to other people. We, we grade our engagement on a curve. And as long as, long as, they are more, as, long as you're more spiritual than the next guy, they figure, we figure everything's fine. You know, sadly, this, this is why, this is so sad, is that when Christians, 
almost get glad. They almost get giddy when a family that, that se- seems to have everything together on the outside ends up, ends up having a rebellious child or a marriage that starts falling apart. Or, or they, they see trouble in, in someone, else's, someone else's life that they deemed as higher up the religious food chain than they were. Because the curve just got a little bit lower. The curve got a little bit lower. Lower. This should not be the church. Have you ever noticed that when we compare ourselves to others, we and we measure our engagement with Christ by comparing ourselves to others, we almost always compare ourselves against those who are basically spiritual, spiritually lifeless. You know, that's when I compare myself to other men, to Amanda, you know who I, I don't, I pick the losers. I said, man, point out that guy. I bet you're glad I'm not like him, huh, honey? Right? I don't pick out the amazing husbands, the, the, the superhero husbands. I pick out the bums. And I point them out and say, see that? You could have been married to that guy. And that's how we are. That's how we are with Christ- as Christians. We point out everybody else that don't seem to be doing as good as we are, and we say, look at God, look how good I am. You know, we heard this analogy on the story on Wednesday night, and I'm going to I'm going to share it with you guys because it fit my message perfect. But there was a, there was a boy that uh, was going. His mom was sending him away to summer camp for the very first time. And they were Christians, and his her her son was, you know, very excited about Jesus, and and she was concerned that when he went away, without her being there, out from with straight other kids and all these things, she was so concerned that he was going to get teased, that he was going to get bullied about his relationship with Jesus. And so the whole time he he was gone, she was anxious and fearful and worried about this stuff. She was praying, Lord, don't let him get hurt, all of these these things. And and when she picked him up from summer camp after the, the week was over, he was excited. He came running into the car. He's telling her about going horseback riding, swimming, arts and crafts, all the campfires, all, all this stuff. She was so ex- he was so excited about everything. And she said, finally asked him, so did anybody make fun of you because of Jesus? And with an excited smile on his face, no, Ma, no one made fun of me at all. I don't think anyone found out. In John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. He said, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. 
Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't you, don't you, it's like, was Jesus hard of hearing or something? Here, Nicodemus is saying all these things about Jesus. He's kind of praising him, telling him that I believe that you're from God. All these things, and, and it's like Jesus didn't even hear any of it. And he just, he just says, I tell you again, that I, I tell you, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And, and what we first got to take note of in this scripture here is where the story begins. What is the time of day? What's the time of day? What, when, did Jesus, when did Nicodemus approach Jesus? He came at night. He came to Jesus at night. Why would you choose to come to Jesus at night? I mean, he had plenty of opportunities during the day. Jesus didn't hide himself. He was out preaching. He was among the people, right? Jesus was teaching in public places. There would have been quite, it would have been quite convenient for, for Nicodemus to come up and take a few minutes and talk with Jesus. In fact, with Nicodemus' position in the community as a spiritual leader, not only spiritual, but the, the, but the, uh, the uh, Pharisees were also political leaders in, in, in Judea, in Jerusalem. They were the political leaders at the time also. He, he could have easily stepped in the front of the line. And he could have talked to Jesus. But Scripture says that he came at night. He came at night. At night, no one would see him. At night, he would avoid the awkward questions from the other, his, his peers in the religious community. At night, he could spend time with Jesus without anyone knowing. If he could speak with Jesus at night when no one was around, maybe he could ha begin a relationship with Jesus without engaging in what Jesus was doing. He could follow Jesus without impacting his job. In fact, his friends and family wouldn't even have to know. He could talk to Jesus at night quietly, and he could make a decision in his own heart to believe Jesus. That way, he wouldn't upset his comfortable life. It wouldn't upset his established way of living. Does any of this hit home? People are happy to follow Jesus as long as it doesn't require any significant engagement. Here is the reality that Jesus drops in Nicodemus' lap. He says, there is no way to follow me without me interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs you something. Count the cost. I have found that following Jesus is worth the cost and its weight in gold. For Nicodemus, it would cost him his powerful position. It would cost him the respect of his co-workers. It would cost him the source of his income and his livelihood. It would cost him his friendships. It, it, it most possibly could cost him his family and his relationships. 
So here's the big question. Is, is following Jesus, has following Jesus cost you anything? Nicodemus begins the conversation with Jesus by making it clear that he has decided that Jesus is really from God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. He had come to the point of belief. But where would he go from there? Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 3 that you must be born again. That would have been hard for this religious leader to hear. He had memorized the first five books of the Bible when he was a boy, and he spent his adult life building a religious resume. But Jesus makes it clear to Nicodemus that his righteous acts, his religious rituals, are not the measurement that Jesus uses about being a follower of him. Nicodemus, Jesus says, must humble himself. He must be born again into a completely new life. A completely new life. In Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciples, you must, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father your, and your mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And he didn't prefacize it with, everybody say, I love Jesus Christ. Did he? I mean, someone needs to tell Jesus that this isn't very seeker friendly. This isn't very seeker friendly. You, you would expect if it was read, if Jesus was to do this in this day, in this age, that Jesus would have said something like this. A large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and said to them, what a great crowd. I want everyone to go invite a friend and come back for tonight's carnival. We're going to have live music, all the loaves and fishes that you can eat. We're even going to have a water-to-wine booth. If, if enough people come, I'll shave my head and get in the dunk tank. And whoever invites the most people gets one free miracle. Let's pack out the hillside. Instead, he tells the people that if they want to follow him, they must hate their family, even their own life. Jesus is honest with the crowd about what it costs, what it may cost you to follow Jesus. See, that's one of the things. One of the things that hinders us is that we think that something's going to cost us, so we, refu we, we don't engage, we don't move forward. But what I find is the only thing it costs you is getting past the fear of it costing you something. A lot of the things that we fear never come to pass. A lot of the times there's blessing in it. Do you, do you know this, that, that the statistic? It's, it's almost guaranteed that when a, when a husband, when a father of a home 
comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the whole family follows. He lets this crowd, he lets the crowd know that following him may mean offending your parents. It might mean offending your grandparents. It may mean being cut out of the will or even cut out of the family completely. There, there, there are people in our world, in the Middle East, in Asian countries, that lose their entire family when they decide to follow Jesus. They, when they are baptized, they have the fear of actually being killed by their own family members. It, they count the cost. There are people who put off following Jesus because they don't want to hurt their parents' feelings. They decide to wait because they don't want to upset the grandparents. There are people that are in dead churches and apostate denominations just because they don't want to upset the family heritage. Then you have the parents that have given up engaging with Jesus and God's kingdom because their children have chosen an ungodly lifestyle and they don't want to offend them. We have young people choosing a boyfriend or a girlfriend rather than putting Jesus first. Jesus most likely is conveying the idea of love me more than the rest, but hate, I think, is very accurate. Because it captures the degree to which we love Jesus more. Imagine different loved ones all competing in a race. You get all, all, all of them lined up on the starting block. There's Jesus, there's your spouse, there's your children, there's your best friend, there's a sibling. You're all, they're all lined up on the starting block. And the idea is not that Jesus comes in first place in that race, but that Jesus is actually the only one on the track. That Jesus is the only one on the track. Jesus isn't saying, I just want to be first place in your life. He's saying, I don't even want there to be a second place. And listen to me, when Jesus is your all in all, when you love Jesus more than anything in this world, you are so empowered to love everyone else very well, very good. Jesus continues to teach the crowd in verse 14 of Luke. In verse 14, verse 28, it continues, but don't Begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might com complete only the foundation before you run out of money. And then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started building and couldn't afford to finish it. Jesus makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear that following him is going to cost. It's going to cost you something. It, it might cost you your time. It might cost 
you your money. It might cost you your your um, entertainment, the, t- the things how you are entertained. You know, so many people use religious a religious ruler, and, and they point to their commitment. They point to their keeping of religious rules and reli- and 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 this this idea of their rituals as evidence that they're engaged with Jesus in building the kingdom. We say stuff like, after all, that's why I go to church every week. I go to church because I'm showing that I'm engaged with Jesus. That's why I put money in the offering. That's why I volunteer in the nursery. And that's why I listen to exclusively to Christian radio. I don't watch R-rated movies and I even, I only drink at home with the curtains down. Of course I'm engaged. Why else would I do all these things? I close with this final question. If engagement in God's kingdom and following Jesus cost you everything, Would it still be worth it? Would it still be worth it? Because there are there are brothers and sisters in Christ around this world that by their choice, by their life, by the way that they live, they give up everything to follow Jesus. And it's worth it. I, I I've listened Listen to testimonies in, in Africa where, where Muslim militants would come into a, to a, uh, to a uh, village and they, and they just kill, rape, torture everyone. There's a, there's a movie, an R-rated movie, called Tears of the Sun. I don't recommend that you guys, well, I guess I am recommending it, but it's bad. But it shows you what the world's really like. And I heard, I heard a testimony of, of the children and their mother that went through these militants coming into the community with machetes and, and murdering. I mean, th- these they would find women with young babies and they would cut off their breasts so they couldn't no longer feed their children and leave them. And the woman, the kids were getting scared and the, and the woman says to her children that they should feel themselves fortunate to give their life to Jesus. We don't, we in America, we don't understand that at all. We don't understand that at all. And I pray that we never do. And I pray that other countries will get to enjoy the same liberties and freedoms. I pray that that the, that the world would come to know Jesus. Because he is Christianity, I'm sorry. Whether you, I know you're sitting here in church because there's lots of people that don't believe this. But the answer and the solution for every single problem in this planet 
is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So we have to de- we have to decide if, if, if we have to. These are things that we have to think about. There are so many decisions that I've already made because I've already thought them through in my head. See, that's the problem: is people get put into a, a vice where all of a sudden the world starts pressure, pressuring them, right? And they, and they do things, and they say things, and they make decisions that they never in their life would think that they would say, do, or, or act like. And the reason is because they never have been in that place and made the decision already in their hearts. And I'm telling you, we could enter in into some, some days in this country where we have to make some decisions in our heart right now so we're prepared when that pressure comes. Would you continue following Jesus if it costs you everything? Because there is a broken and dying world that needs a church that says yes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is a perfect example of one that gave up everything for those that hated him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And no greater love is there than this, that he lays down his life for his brethren. Father, Jesus laid his life down for us so that we might live. May we live engaged in him. May we live engaged in what he is wanting to do in the earth. May we live with with his will being done in our life as the forefront of every decision that we make. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would cause your church to be emboldened in the things of God. That we would be emboldened by the love of God. That we would be emboldened to be salt and light in the earth. That we would be empowered to live above this this fallen world and live supernaturally in the grace of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called each one of us to be engaged in this moment, in this time in history. And I thank you that as we step out in faith, you will will provide everything that you have already provided, the provisions that you have already provided to bring it to pass. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we celebrate you. And with everything within me, I believe that the best is yet to come. That your kingdom will be on earth as it is in heaven. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand up and worship in church.